Good evening, everyone. Thanks, Billy. All right. So we continue tonight in our series called Revive Us. Um, This has been a unique series in the life of our church where we have sought to simply, as a teaching team, sit before the Lord each week on Monday and just go, God, what what do you have for, for your church this week? And each week, there's just another, an, another lesson of what it means to live in intimacy with God that we have been experiencing. But, one, but there's been some themes that have started to emerge as the weeks of the series has kind of progressed, um, as the Spirit's been kind of leading. And, and it's been really exciting, especially on this theme that our journey with Jesus is meant to be a long obedience in the same direction now that concept, a long obedience in the same direction, we've talked about this, it's quite countercultural. It feels borderline unnatural in a world that prizes speed, personal choice, and fluid direction, right? But you see, tonight, we're going to focus in on one of those three pieces. Um, I believe the Lord was putting my heart to, to focus in on that concept of obedience. Now, I know that that is not a trending word on social media at any point in the last 20 years that social media has been around. It hasn't been around that long. I don't, 15 years, I don't know, whenever MySpace started. Anyway, never, never trended. MySpace all the way to TikTok. Obedience has never been something that's been like, oh man, that's so cool. I want to watch obedience videos. <laughs> now, a few weeks ago, I, I talked about, kind of connected this topic, uh, that my father-in-law and I had been excavating a tree from my backyard and, and my body, I am happy to report, healed yesterday morning um, from that task. It was a ton of work. Thankfully, my 60-something-year-old father-in-law is ready to tackle large tasks with me. Um, So now here's the thing. We knew it was going to be a huge undertaking. It was an eight-year-old oak. We knew, we didn't even know how the, the root structure was going to operate. We didn't know. We just knew it was going to be a lot of work. Now, we also knew that what was needed is that that root structure, the entire tree needed to be removed, no matter how difficult it was going to be for us. Now, we could have taken an easier route and gone, you know, it's not that bad, right? I mean, let's just spruce it up a little bit. Let's just get the hedges out and we're just going to trim down the branches, rake up some leaves, call it a day. Now, our goal was to remove the entire root structure that was deep beneath, no matter what it was going to cost. Nothing less would do. Now, when it comes to our spiritual lives, when we think of a life of flourishing, we so easily focus our energy on branch modification, on sprucing it up a little bit. But you see, Jesus has always had in mind that real life happens. Real life of flourishing occurs when he deals with the root structure underneath. Now, there are two different methods by which we in our human attempts to cut branches on our, own, uh, on our own, to flourish on our own terms. We utilize two different tools. We either utilize the tool of license or legalism. Now, I'll define both of those. License is the belief that I can do whatever I want. Either God wouldn't ask me to do anything I don't want to do. He wouldn't desire for me to change my thoughts unless I want to. Or maybe he does, but I just don't really, I don't really care. The other version is legalism. The belief that if I just work hard enough, 
if I keep all the right rules, if I do all the right things, then I'm gonna be impressive to God and I'm gonna be impressive to other people. Now, me, Danny, as a person, I can so easily bounce between both of those like in the same day, right? I mean, in one moment, I'm like, God would never ask me to surrender my wants and my, my dreams. And then the next moment, if I just try harder, then I can vanquish all my struggles on my own. But here's the problem. I'm just chilling up top, attacking branches, thinking that that will make me have a life of flourishing. Now, God has been revealing both of these tendencies to me in my own heart recently. And it's been both terrifying and freeing as I've been coming to him in a space of confession and repentance. But as I was doing so, he began to bring to my attention all of the all of the times when I have sat with my friends within this community who have, who have fallen into either or both of those sides. And the hurt and the pain and the suffering and the broken relationships that have occurred because of that. And, and I just realized, man, this is, God, this is the message that you have for our church tonight. Because branch modification can look better for a little bit but it never satisfies and it doesn't lead us to draw near to Jesus. My hope is that tonight, each of us would start out by just going to a posture like this, like an open-handed posture. I know that that's hard, it's, or it's at least easy to say, it's hard to truly do. God, where is this me? Would you be bold enough to ask that? Where are the spaces in your heart that you keep sealed off from God? Where, what are the dreams or desires that you're like, nope, not, gonna, not handing that one over? What are the beliefs that you're like, nope, I know what I think about it. I'm not handing that one over. Where's the spaces of unforgiveness or bitterness? And you're like, nope, not handing that one over. On the other side, where are the spaces in your heart that you've been holding yourself or others up to rules of your own making? Maybe they are inspired by God's word, but they are missing the heart of the gospel altogether. See, God's desire is that we would stop trying to go after branches with hedge trimmers and instead allow him to do the root excavation work as we listen to his voice of both power and affection. So let's dig in. So here's what I would like to do. Let's start with this. I'm going to read a prayer over all of us tonight. Now, this prayer is known as the Shema. You, you've probably heard it in one version or the other. It is the prayer that epitomized the people of Israel in the Old Testament all the way up till today. So this is a prayer that they would know to pray regularly. Now, what you'll notice is that this is not a prayer the way that we would think of praying but it's meant to be a transformative prayer, a meditative prayer that you would be reminded of who God is and who we are. So here's what I'd like for you to do. I'm gonna read it over you. And what I would love for you to do is just close your eyes and put your hands out open, just in a posture of surrender. Even if you're not feeling like surrendering to God tonight. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. 
Again, not your standard prayer, right? It doesn't start with a dear God and doesn't end with an amen. But what it is, is it's meant to transform their imaginations, their minds and their hearts with who God is and what they are supposed to do in response to who he is. Now it's called the Shema based on the first word of the prayer here. Now, Bible Project a few years ago made a great video on this and they can explain it a lot better than me. So I want us to watch this video really quick and then we'll keep going. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now, the first word of the Shema is hear or listen, which in Hebrew is pronounced Shema. That's where the prayer gets its name. Now, Shema is a really common word in the Hebrew Bible, and it's obvious why. Hearing is a very universal activity. It's usually connected with the ear, as in Proverbs chapter 20, ears that Shema and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. Now, that seems basic enough, but if you look at the other ways that Hebrew authors can use the word Shema, they use it to mean more than just let sound waves enter your ear. In Hebrew, Shema can also mean pay attention to or focus on. So when Leah, who wasn't loved by her husband Jacob, she has a son and she names him Simon, or in Hebrew, Shimon, because she says, the Lord has Shamad, that I am unloved. So Shema means to hear and to pay attention to and even more. It can also mean responding to what you hear. This is why so many of the cries for help in the book of Psalms begin with a call that God listen. Psalm 27 verse 7, Shema my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful, answer me. So asking God to Shema is at the same time asking God to act, to do something. It's similar to when God asks people to listen. Like when the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, God says, If you shema me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now, there's a couple interesting things about this verse in Exodus. In Hebrew, the word shema is repeated twice in this sentence to give it emphasis. If you shema shema, meaning listen closely. But also notice that from God's point of view, listening is basically the same as keeping the covenant. So when God asks the people to Shema, what he means is that they listen and obey. And that's the last fascinating thing about Shema. In ancient Hebrew, there is no separate word for obey, meaning to carry out the wishes of someone who knows better than you or is in authority over you. So in the Bible, if you want to say, I will listen and do what you say, you use the single word Shema. In Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. This is why later in Israel's history, when the people were breaking their covenant promises to God, the Hebrew prophets would say things like, they have ears, but they're not listening. The Israelites, of course, could hear just fine, but they weren't actually listening or else they would act differently. And so in the end, listening in the Bible is about giving respect to the one speaking to you and doing what they say. Real listening takes effort and action. And that's the Hebrew word Shema. Good stuff, right? Highly recommend Bible Projects. Their app, so good, y'all. All right, so listen and obey are two sides of the same coin. I love that imagery, right? Now, here's the question that should go with this and where we should go next. Why should we? 
why should we listen and obey the voice of God? It's fair, right? The reality is that we humans don't typically listen and obey God because we have trust issues with him. Now, when you have trust issues with someone, there are, there's typically two reasons, like you could boil it down to two reasons why you lack trust for someone. You either doubt their intentions, their goodness towards you. Um, think of somebody who gives you, uh, tells you to go do something, but it's going to be, it was selfishly said, or it's going to end up in your getting hurt, or they're foolish. They don't know what they're talking about. They might have the best of intentions, but what they desire for you to do is foolish. You're not going to do it. Now, from the beginning, we, uh, in the scriptures, we get this image that these are the two things that humanity is consistently tempted to doubt. God's goodness and his wisdom. In, this, in the garden, the serpent tells the woman, Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, starts it this way. Verse five, for God knows, this is the serpent talking to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't you get this image that in the beginning, the serpent is tempting the woman to say, God isn't for you. He's out for himself. He isn't looking towards what would be good for you. You will be like God. He knows that about you. So he's holding back. He's holding out on humanity. The other reason we doubt God's uh, trustworthiness is that we believe he might be foolish or unwise. We see that in the story later on in the book of Genesis. Uh, in Genesis 18, we get this image. We get this image of uh, Abraham and Sarah. The angel of the Lord appears to Abraham and he is talking to him and he is saying to him, you're going to conceive, your wife is going to conceive a child even though you guys are pretty old. But listen to what happens Genesis 18, verses 10 through 14. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, she had already went through menopause. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, that I shall have pleasure. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time next year, I will return to you and about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. So we get the image here that Sarah doesn't have a problem with God's desires for this. Like she would love a child, but what she does doubt is that it's even possible that this could possibly come to pass, that God, that the angel of the Lord was clearly speaking foolishly. Now, these are the same two realities that we, that can strain any relationship with trust. We either doubt somebody's goodness, their intentions, or we doubt their wisdom and think they're foolish. Now, very practically, with Asher and Abby, I am well aware that I am an imperfect dad and I'm going to make imperfect decisions on their behalf from time to time. 
But my desire as their dad is that I would never make choices on their behalf or that affect them that are not rooted out of a desire towards goodness for them and for their flourishing. But still, even say every decision I ever make on their behalf is fully good. It is fully well-intended. I am not fully wise. I'm going to make bad choices. And there's a reality where that is already like grieving to me is that my choices are going to cause them trust issues with me from time to time throughout their upbringing and into adulthood. That's part of just life, right? And this is the same with any relationship. Now, maybe you had parents or a loved one who you legitimately had reason to doubt their motivations, that they were rooted in goodness for you, that they were, uh, that they were looking out for their own interests over others. Or maybe on the flip side, we also have this reality that, in, that there is such a thing of a secure and trusting relationship that a secure and trusting relationship is one that is born out of love. It is born out of wisdom and it's born out of goodness. But here's the deal. No human on earth is perfectly trustworthy. Every single one of us has mixed motivations and lacks wisdom. That's the human condition. Broken motivations and complete wisdom. But here's the good news. God isn't like us. God isn't like us. See, while we, while we do actively doubt his desires are good or his wisdom is for our good, here's what we can rest in. He is the only being in the history of the cosmos who has proven himself to be consistently desiring good and fully wise in all of his purposes ever. I mean, think of the most trustworthy person you know. Jesus beats that. The Father beats that. The Spirit of God beats that person. Now, I realize that this is not something that I can truly convince you of. If this is something you're wrestling with, then what I'd encourage you towards is continue journey with him in the scriptures on this. But see, it is vital that, that, this is vital that we would understand as like a baseline if we are to stop focusing on branch issues and allow him to get to the root. See, if we don't have a loving attachment with God that is rooted in trust, then all we're left with is branch solutions. Trying to fix ourselves, listening to the wisdom of our deceptive hearts and our broken culture, looking to other humans for the connection and purpose and validation that only God can truly satisfy. Attempting to work harder to impress God and to repress, impress others. But God's desire is that we would grow this secure, trusting, loving attachment with him. In fact, isn't this kind of like the heart of the gospel? Think about John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God displayed his trustworthiness by not holding back his own son to redeem, restore, and rescue us back to himself. God displayed true love, not bludgeoning over the head, but going to the furthest extent when we couldn't make the trip to him. Going after us, adopting us into his forever family so that we could rest in his embrace. 
Remember last week we were talking about Jesus' baptism? What did the voice of the Father tell Jesus? You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We have been adopted with the full rights of sonship. Adopted as sons and daughters to the king. You are beloved. To be beloved is to be uniquely loved. I'll say that again. Maybe you don't believe this. You are beloved. Whether you feel like you are worthy of that or not, the reality is you're not, neither am I. But that's what he says anyway. You are beloved. You are beloved. You are secure and you are safe if you have been adopted into his family. If you know the risen Jesus, then this is the truest thing about you. Legitimately, the truest thing about you is you are loved by God. See, just as Jesus was fully known and safe and secure, even in the darkest moments of his life and in all of existence, this same relationship was purchased with Jesus's body for you and for me. See, if God has pursued your heart or if he is actively even right now pursuing your heart to bring you into his family, which by the way, by virtue of you being here tonight, I have to believe that that's what God's been up to in your life. This is what he desires to do. He wants you for his family. He wants you to experience a secure, trusting and loving attachment with God. Him. Ali and I um, both had to do a decent amount of learn, learning as we were in the adoption process for Asher a few years ago on the importance of attachment. Ali, her degrees in social work, so she already had done a lot of this legwork. But for me, it was a lot of learning about what secure attachments look like between a parent and a child. And it's more important than I could have ever comprehended. And it was so helpful. Now, recently for Ali and I, we have begun to do the hard work of learning and growing in a healthier attachment with one another based on the same principles. Uh, the, the principle or the, the theory is called attachment theory. Now, there are a ton of great resources to attachment theory um, by Christian counselors. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, but here's like the, the, cliff, the cliffiest cliff notes version of it. There are four attachment styles and we each have an attachment style towards everyone we interact with. We either have a secure attachment, which is trustful and love. We can have an anxious attachment, which is insecure and sensitive. We can have a disorganized attachment style, which is insecure and inconsistent, or an avoidant attachment style, which is insecure and detached. Now, we have one of these with each person we interact with on a regular basis, and they have one towards us. We also have a version of an attachment style in the way we relate to God. Now, which attachment style do you believe that you have with God? Secure, anxious, disorganized, avoidant? Now guess which one God desires for you to live in. There's a correct answer to this question. See, it's only from a secure attachment with God that the word Shema, to listen and obey, makes any sense at all. Now, what kind of attachment do you believe God has towards you? 
Because you might think that God is just the angry principal who's going to call, who only wants to do anything to do with you when you're in trouble. You might think of God as someone who is needy and he needs our worship uh, like, like Zeus in the Greek pantheon of gods. Now, depending on your view of how God is attached towards you, it will affect the way that you hear passages like this one. This is from the book of John, chapter 14. Now, in John 14, verse 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is where he is telling them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. And get this, this is what he says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's not exactly the kind of thing that we want to post on social media as far as sayings from Jesus, right? Because this is obedience kind of language. Now, how do you think Jesus was saying this? Do you think he was really anxious? Like he was anxious towards his, like, I don't trust that you love me, so I need you to show me that you love me, so keep my commandments so that I feel better about your love towards me. Do you think Jesus was trying to instill fear, disorganization? Show me you love me. Keep my commandments. Prove yourself to me. Now, it's hard to say that this, nobody who is avoidant would even say things like this, right? They wouldn't, that's kind of the point of being avoidant is you wouldn't say anything at all. Or is it out of a place of security? My love for you is secure. I am not going anywhere, but you will know that you have a secure love with me as you listen and you obey my commands, and my desires for even when you disagree with them, even when you question them, even when they are difficult for you to follow out. Which one sounds more like Jesus' intent? There's a correct answer. And not just from my personal opinion, it's what Jesus continues to talk about in verse 16. Listen to this. Listen to what he says next. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In the epistles, Paul writes that the Holy Spirit is a seal of your salvation. Is there any greater mark of our security with God than the Spirit of God who rests within you if you are adopted into his family? The answer is no, there there isn't. Like that is literally the most secure thing. Not based on how good you did today on your Christian checklist. It is resting in the security that you are loved, secure, and safe in him. See, God's desire is that we would be secure in his love and that we would live as loved. He wants you to know that by the power of the spirit, he isn't going anywhere. He is with you always to the end of the age. His desire is that you would live in that love, that you would rest in a secure attachment with him. And that if you are living in that love, you will listen and obey his voice, even when it's different than what you naturally think. Especially then. 
I mean, the kind of the concept of obedience only comes, you're never obedient when somebody says something like, hey, do you want to go get a chocolate bar? And you're like, yeah, I would love to go get a chocolate. Like that's not being obedient. That's getting a chocolate bar, right? Like obedience is when you don't want to and you go like this. Your wisdom over mine, your goodness over mine. See, it's only out of this secure attachment that we can be bold enough to pray what the psalmist prays in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a prayer from a place of security. God, I know you're not gonna reject me. I know you're not looking to beat me over the head. I know that you are not looking for me for validation. So Lord, because I am secure with you, would you search me? Would you know everything? Would you look at the root structure and find the little crevices that I'm unaware of? See, when we live in license, we live in a space of not listening and disobedience. That as we say, well, that's just the way I am. This is who I believe I am. These are my dreams, my desires. I don't want to stop. This is what I want for my life. There's no way that God would possibly disagree with that. See, at the heart level, those might be branch issues, but at the heart level, what is happening is when we are living out of space of license is we are avoiding God by not drawing near to listen to his voice. We are prioritizing the voice of our own hearts or the world around us over the voice of God. But God wants us not to be shamed into obedience, but to live from the heart of secure, trusting love. Because when we know and truly believe that Jesus is better and that he is truly wise, then we'll listen and obey. We will follow and we will trust even when it's not what we would desire. Believing that his ways are better than ours. His thoughts are better than our thoughts. And on the flip side, when we live in legalism, we live in a space of not listening and disobedience. As we say, well, I have to work harder. It's all on me. I have to prove myself. Okay, great. I am saved, but now it's on me. Or for me to be safe with God, I better. Or for me to be safe with other people, I better. Ultimately, when we are living out of legalism, we do so out of fear, anxiety, and disorganization. Is God going to reject me? Will I be poorly thought of? Will I, will I be able to live with myself? Will God be disappointed? But see, what God wants is so much better than that. Because FYI, if you were wondering if God would be disappointed by the things you do, naturally, absolutely, we're humans. It's our thing. We mess up. I love... Uh, let's say Jonathan Edwards said this, I forget for sure, but some, some old person who's long dead uh, said the only thing that we bring to God is our deep need for which his forgiveness is owed. That's it. We don't bring our good to him. And then he goes, well, that counts. No, he goes, bring to me all the brokenness, all the roots and watch what I can do. Anything less else just cheapens the gift. You see, whether we live out of legalism or license, either option is just hacking away at the branches. 
going at life on our own terms. Now, for those of you who do know Jesus, do you remember that first moment when you came to follow after him? What was your heart posture towards God in that moment? Was it a lot of this? God, do you remember praying? Like, God, take everything you... Were you doing it so that he would love you? No, right? Like that was the point. You knew that you were loved. So now you could do this. God, take everything. And then you thought in that moment, you handed him everything. (laughs) And throughout our life, we continue to learn more spaces that we're like, no, take everything. Search my thoughts. Know my anxious mind. Know the ways in me that are broken. Know the, the sinful desires of my heart. Would you, I just discovered this one. Somebody else pointed this out one to me. Would you take it? And we just keep going like this to him. Now in our world, that looks like failure but there is no greater success in the Christian life than that. To keep going back to him, to surrender to his control, asking him to do a new work. See, the discoveries of new ways of obedience to God isn't a bad thing. It's a marvelous thing. The opposite is a terrible thing. To believe that you have figured it out or that you don't care. Either of those options are not Shema. It is not to listen and obey. Either of those options are focusing on your wisdom over God's. Because unless you are perfect, the spirit of God has more work for you. So if it's been a while since the last time God has brought something else to your mind, I promise you, you're not perfect. So Shema, listen, listen and obey be formed and continually reformed by his voice. See, the beauty of the Shema prayer is that it was meant to be a formative prayer. That is, they meditated on, okay, God is whole. He is complete. He is one. And now he asked for the whole me to love him based on who he is. It reminded the people of Israel who they were, what they were called to do, and whose they were. See, when you are reminded of who the God is who loves you, you will know how to shema. You will know how to listen and obey. And that's really good news, isn't it? Now, we're going to transition into a time of engaging together in the spiritual rhythm known as guided prayer. So I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to head on up. Now, this is meant to be a time of prayer that is going to form us to simply respond out of a posture of Shema. That we would listen and obey the one who loves you more than you could possibly fathom. See, as the Shema was a vital formative prayer for the nation of Israel, Jesus gave his followers a formative prayer as well to remind them of who they are, whose they are, and how they are called to respond. We know it today as the Lord's Prayer. Now, maybe you grew up in a faith tradition where it was prayed regularly or you, and maybe you didn't even know why. But tonight, what we're gonna do is go to the heart of why this matters, that it would be a transformative prayer, that it would be a formative prayer, that it would renew our hearts and our minds to be guided by the loving Father who calls us to listen and obey. In Matthew chapter 6, He says, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. See that first line, our father. I love this. Did you get that first part? He didn't start it with my father. Our father. This is meant for the community of God to be formed. But he's a father. First and foremost, he's a father. I don't know what kind of relationship you had with your earthly dad, but here's what I do know with the way we are called to relate to our heavenly father. It is meant to be one that puts whatever great or terrible relationship you have with your earthly dad to shame because he is secure and loving, fully good, fully for you and fully, fully wise. Nothing foolish about him. And it's out of that, as we know that he is our father, that we are brought to safety and that we have safety when we listen and obey his voice. He is safe, he is secure, he is loving. In fact, his name, according to this, is hallowed. It's holy, it is set apart. In other words, there is nobody, nothing like our father. Now, Jesus gave us this prayer to help transform our thinking about God and to keep in mind our dependence on him. We cannot bring his kingdom about apart from him. We need him for daily bread, for forgiveness, and for deliverance from the test of the evil one. Now, this prayer is not meant to just be a a religious ritual, but a blueprint for the heart of God that we could draw near to him each and every day. That this prayer would be an anchor to the one who calls us to Shema. So tonight we thought it would be helpful to pray through this prayer as a spiritual rhythm together. So I'm going to ask Lauren to come forward and to lead this time. Um, As Danny said, a lot of the time we think of the Lord's Prayer as something ritualistic. Um, Maybe that's your tradition you were brought up in. Uh, Maybe you're completely unfamiliar with it. but I have been meditating on the Lord's Prayer this week. Um, And something that I've started to understand a little more is um, Jesus gave us this model, not because it was correct, but because it was for our benefit. Um, For those of us who have been around the church a while, sometimes we hear the teaching about how prayer is supposed to be a conversation. It's supposed to be two-sided, but um, our prayer lives feel like we're talking more than we're listening, and we don't know what that's supposed to look like um, practically. But that is what this poem, this model that Jesus gave us is for. It's not just words to come out of our mouths, but concepts and truths to meditate on that reveal the heart of God. So we're gonna break down each line in this prayer so that we can really meditate on what it is telling us about our father and his relationship with us. And the hope for all of us is that through letting these truths marinate in our hearts that God would reveal himself to us, whether it is something very specific to our lives right now or simply just more insight into his character and his love for you. So make yourself comfortable, whatever posture you would like to take to pray. Take a few moments now, close your eyes. Ask the spirit to bring your attention to him, not to just rid yourself of whatever anxious thoughts you might have, 
but to help you to bring your whole self, whatever you walked in with today, to the Father to encounter him and be changed. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our obedience comes when we know to whom our lives are surrendered. So to center our hearts, let us hallow his name. Who is our Father in heaven? What is he like? What attributes and characteristics come to your mind? Praise him and thank him for these things. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus came to earth, he created a way through himself and now through us for the kingdom of God to invade the kingdoms that we have set up for ourselves. What does his kingdom look like? What things in our own kingdoms are contrary to his? What idols rule in our kingdoms over him? Let us surrender our kingdoms and ask his to overcome. Give us this day our daily bread. What things do we need today, right now? 
Are they practical and physical? Are they emotional or spiritual? Whatever our needs are, our Father wants to provide them for us. So let us ask him for them now. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As we have already recognized, we put our kingdoms over his. In what ways are we recently or currently doing this? Confess those things to the Father now and receive his grace and forgiveness. Is there any bitterness or resentment that we are holding on to? Is there anger in which we feel justified because we are hurt? Just as the Father so graciously forgives us every day, through his Spirit we are asked to extend that grace to others, whether or not we think they deserve it, or whether or not they have even apologized. Let's ask the Spirit to give us the power to forgive them in our hearts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We have surrendered our idols and confessed our sins, but we know tonight is not the first time we've been in need to do so. As we find more of our hope in him, 
We put less hope in the things that tempt us, but we cannot do that in our own strength. Let us ask God to guide us in his ways, to make our desire for him greater than our need to satisfy our own wants and for protection in the battle against our enemy who will try to distract us. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Despite our own efforts, Jesus has already won the victory over sin and death and destruction. In this prayer, we have asked the spirit to work in us and through us. But the good news is that he also works in spite of us. There will be a day where all things are reconciled, made right again through him. And that reality is already secured through the death and resurrection of Christ. So let's praise our father for who he was, who he is, and who he is to come forever. So now with keeping in mind everything that the Lord has shown and revealed us tonight, would you stand? We're all going to recite the Lord's prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen, church.